Growing in God's Word and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. You ever feel like life is not working, nothing is going right, or nothing seems to be working out, or nothing seems to be the way I thought it was going to be? Do you ever face trials in your life? Well, I think we all know the answer to that one, don't we? You and I live in a sin-cursed world, and that means that in this life, we will have circumstances and trials that are very trying. So, I guess a better question would be, what do you do when those times of trials come? Life, with its problems, with the struggles, betrayals, heartaches, and pain, when life turns you every which way but loose, turn to the only way who will never let you lose. Hello and welcome to Crosswalk. We're working our way through the book of Mark in our series, Jesus, the Real Action Hero. We're so glad you've joined us today. If you listen to our broadcast regularly, or if this is your first time, we're glad to have you with us. Today, Pastor Clay is taking us to the second half of Mark chapter 5. It's two stories of two individuals who experienced tremendous trials, but the stories are woven together in such a way to give us one beautiful truth about where to turn when trials come into our life. Now here Here's Pastor Clay. About a week ago, one of of my grandsons, Emery, was sick. He had that bug that was going around, that 24-hour throwing up diarrhea thing. And y'all know what I'm talking about? All right, y'all seen that been going around some? Come on now. Yeah. It was about a little over a week ago that he was, uh, that he, he had this. And uh, so, uh, you know, he was really sick and, you know, it's just, it's, you know. <laughs> and so, uh, Travis and Lauren, you know, they didn't want him to get dehydrated, of course. And uh, that can happen when, when you're, you know, vomiting and diarrhea and all that kind of stuff. That obviously can happen, especially to a, a young child. And so, they were trying to make sure that he drank uh, lots of uh, Gatorade, you know, to keep liquids and electrolytes and all that kind of stuff in him. And, you know, when, you, when you're sick, when you don't feel good, you really don't feel much like eating or drinking anything. But, you know, they kept coaxing him along and saying, you, you need to, come on, keep drinking because this is going to, the Gatorade's going to make you feel better. You need to drink this Gatorade. This Gatorade's going to make you feel better. And keep drinking this Gatorade because it's going to make you feel better. So he was drinking some of it and stuff. And uh, then Travis said after a while, he just let loose again. You know, he just got sick and threw up all over the place. And, uh, Travis said, he, he, and, and, you know, in the midst of all this, he looked up at Travis, just these pitiful eyes, and he said, Gatorade's not working. <laughs> do, you ever, do you ever feel that way? I, I, don't mean, I don't mean sick. I don't mean you ever feel sick. But do you ever feel like it's not working? Do you know what I mean? Do you ever feel like life is not working? Do you ever feel like nothing is going right or nothing seems to be working out or nothing seems to be the way I thought it was going to be or, or something like that. Do you, you ever have any of those kinds of experiences? In John chapter 14, we find this passage of Scripture. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, that verse is one of the bedrock passages of Scripture 
for the soteriological understanding of the church. And I know soteriology, soteriology, I know that's a, a big technical term that I just used. But soteriology is basically the study of salvation. Okay, that's, that's just what it means. It's the study of salvation. You all say, why don't you just say that? <laughs> it, it just means the study of salvation. And for 2,000 years, uh, the, the Orthodox Church, the, the biblically-centered church, has taught that Jesus Christ is not a way. Jesus Christ is not one of several ways. Jesus Christ is the only way to gain access to the Father. Because Jesus Christ is the only one who laid down, willingly laid down his perfect sinless life to redeem us, to purchase us, to buy us back out of our sin so that we then could be in right standing with God and be adopted into his family. He's the only one that, that ever did that. Now, each and every person has to decide for herself or his self, whether they believe that that statement is correct, accurate, or not. Every person has to make that decision for themselves. No one can be forced to make it. No one can be forced into the kingdom of God. And historically, if you look at times when people were tried to do that, that was not of God, that was, was not biblical. Every, every person has to make that decision for themselves. And those of us who have come to the place that we do believe that that statement is accurate, that Jesus Christ is the one and only way to access to the Father. For those of us that have come to believe that salvation is gained only through the redemption that was purchased by Jesus Christ on the cross, and we have accepted, received that forgiveness by acknowledging Christ as Savior and Lord and asking Him to be the Lord of our life, those of us who have already made that determination, we can say, praise God, hallelujah. Because it means... That our eternal destiny is secure and that when this life is over, whenever that is for all of us, when this life is over, we have a place waiting for us in the kingdom of God. Now, I know that when you reference eternity and and living forever, I I understand that for some people that ranks right up there with, with Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster as... Uh, just nothing more than a figment of someone's imagination. For some people, the idea of living forever is nothing but a fantasy for the uneducated, unlearned masses. But I would point out that literally since the beginning of time, every nation, every culture, every tribe, every people group on the face of this planet from the beginning of time till now over the entire earth, every single culture in the world has some type of understanding of and belief in an afterlife. Eternity is real and every person will spend eternity in one of two places. But what about before this life is over? But what about now? Because I'm in now, right? I live in the temporal now. I live in the material world now. And now I understand that that 70, 80, even 90 years on this planet is nothing. It's nothing compared to eternity. That is to come. I, 
I understand that intellectually, right? I, I understand that, uh, that eternity uh, is so much more than the here and now, and that, that's where the primary focus of my life should be. And that's why I always tell people, I don't care. You know, I mean, it's, it's, you've got to decide for yourself, but I don't care if, if, it's, if it's Christianity or Islam or, or Buddhism or Taoism or uh, Catholicism or atheism or, or any other ism you can think of, whatever it is that you believe in, you sure better make sure that it's right. Because forever is a long time. But I understand, intellectually, uh, there's no comparison between the here and now and the eternal, and that's where my focus should be. But I'm here now. With life, with its messes, with its problems, with its imperfections, with the struggles and anxieties and uh, betrayals and and heartaches, and pain, and suffering, I'm in this right now. Hey, and listen, by the way, I don't mean to sound like uh, Debbie Downer and that all of life is bad. It's not. As a matter of fact, when lived for Christ, while it's not perfect in this life, everything's not perfect, but, what, but when it's lived for Christ, life is, can be, and is great. It's great. And, and eternity will be even greater. Whatever all it will be, and I understand there's mystery there and God doesn't tell us everything, but, but it's going to be even greater. But I'm here right now. And so what do we do with it? How do we handle it? When, when life at times, and this is the truth, when life at times seems to turn you every which way but loose. Do you know what I mean? Nothing works out. Nothing makes sense. Nothing seems to be going right. What about then? What do I, what, what do, I do then? For those of you that are new uh, to Cross Culture Church, uh, I, I have this thing that I bring up from time to time. It's, it's called a, a BP squared. Uh, BP squared uh, simply means this. It means big picture biblical principle. I don't use it all the time, and, and I haven't used it in, in a while. But the, the BP squared, the big picture biblical principle, uh, is basically my attempt to summarize in one statement uh, the, the primary truth or, the prim- or a primary application from the particular text that we are looking at. And so I'll sometimes point out what I, what I see is this big picture biblical principle, my BP squared. I have one of those for you today, and it looks like this. When life turns you every which way but loose, turn to the only way who will never let you lose. Now, I'll give you a minute to fill in. I know there's a lot of blanks in there. A lot of blanks in the outline in general today. That's, well, that's just the way it works out. And listen, I've said this before. I'll say it again. If you like taking notes, if you like using an outline, please do that. Uh, some people really like it. Other people say, you know what, I'd I just rather, you know, look at you or go to sleep or, or whatever else. I'm not a note-taking guy. Whatever the case may be, this is about you and, and God and, and how he might use me to speak into your heart and your life today. So, so whatever floats your boat, uh, please... Uh, Carry on. Uh, but when life turns you every which way but lose, turn the only way who will never let you lose. I have discovered in life there tends to be what I, what I would say are, are two ways that, that trials come into our life. Because that's what we're talking about. Circumstances, trials of our life, and nothing seems to work out right. Life tends, or trials tend to come into our life in two ways. Now, they, they may not be the only two ways, but as, as I was really thinking about this and, 
And, and looking at this account that we're going to look at in just a minute, I thought, you know, that, that's really the, the two primary ways. It seems to me in my experiences that trials tend to come into your life. And we just happen to see both of those in the text where we are today as we're working our way through the book of Mark. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, whatever version, hard copy, electronic, Mark chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 21 to 43, the last half of Mark chapter 5, where we find what I believe are examples of the two ways at least two primary ways in which trials come into our life. So, uh, you ready? The text is going to be up on the screen as well, and you can follow along there, but I always encourage you, bring a copy of God's Word, however you like to carry that. Feel free to take notes uh, however you like to do as well. All right, everybody here, right? We're awake, we're good. What time is it? It's 11.04. All right, you've all had breakfast. You're sharp. Mark 5. 21 to 43, listen to how Mark records what happens here. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat, last week he went over to the the Gadarenes region, he dealt with a demon-possessed situation over there. When Jesus crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. And so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death, please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him and a large crowd was following him and and, and pressing in on him and a woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years, some translations say an an issue of blood for 12 years, and had endured much at the hands of many physicians, and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak, for she thought, if I just touch his garment, I will get well. Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? His disciples said to him, "Uh, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? Everybody's touching you. And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman... Fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. And while he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue officials saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official. And he saw a commotion and, and people loudly uh, weeping and, and wailing. It was a common practice back then to, to hire professional wailers. I know that may sound strange to us, but that was just part of the custom. They would hire people to come in and, and, and wail, carry on a, a commotion. Which probably explains why they laugh at Jesus in just a second. And entering in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him. 
But pulling them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room with the chi- where the child was. And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately, they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. Father, uh, two amazing stories here, and they're intertwined uh, in a way that I think is not insignificant. I think you have your purposes and plans even in uh, this uh, intersection of these, these two lives, this woman with the issue of, of blood and Jairus and his daughter who was at the point of death and even had died. Uh, today in, in this room or those listening, uh, they know what it is to have uh, trials and pain and circumstances and difficulties and <sighs> so much more. I, I wouldn't even begin to, to speculate what all some of the people in this room have been through. It's not been easy. It is not easy at times. But I think that there's something that we can learn from you and your interaction with this woman with the issue of blood and with Jairus. And I pray that you would teach us about trials and and not only how they come into our life, but then what we do with them when they come into our life. I don't want people to get the wrong idea about this text today, Lord. There is something significant uh, that... that, um, that I want to make sure that they understand. So, so help me to clearly communicate. I am honored, as always, to be your messenger boy. And I pray that your truth would have its effect in each person's life in this place, wherever they are, in whatever circumstance or whatever trial or whatever difficulty they, they are in or perhaps are heading towards it they don't even know. May your will be done in our lives. In Christ's strong name, amen. Okay, uh, let's look at uh, the what I consider the two primary ways that trials come into our life. The first one uh, looks like this. There is what I call the crushing trial. And it is based on an unending circumstance. Now, I I won't read 21 through 34 again at this point because I I just read that text. But it is the crushing trial. It is an unending circumstance. Now, what's interesting as we move into the second half of Mark chapter 5, is that Mark starts out telling us this story about this synagogue official named Jairus. Or Jairus, or Jairus, however you would pronounce his name. Who comes to Jesus because his 12-year-old daughter is at the point of death. And he says, he says come with me. He, he begs, he falls down on his knees, he begs, he pleads, says, come with me. That, that you might touch her or speak the word or whatever you're going to do, Jesus. But, but you've got to heal her, you've got to make her well. And so Jesus heads out and he starts uh, towards Jairus' house. But suddenly the story is interrupted by this woman with the issue of blood. We don't know what it was. Good many scholars speculate that it it probably had something to do with the woman's reproductive uh, system. It, It was, in essence, a menstrual cycle that had lasted 12 years. Twelve years. She hears that Jesus is in town. She's heard some things about him. And she goes up and she interrupts. Basically breaks in on the action. Now, it may not have been her intention. Her intention is just, I'll, I'll go in I'll incognito. I'll just touch him and I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, 
but she, she breaks this story all of a sudden with this woman with the issue of blood. But think about it for a minute. Jairus has probably essentially known nothing but joy for the last 12 years with this, with this daughter, this girl, this, this daddy's little girl. He's known nothing but joy. This woman has known nothing but pain and suffering for the last 12 years. So maybe it's only appropriate that she gets to go first. Her trial was costly. I want you to understand the cost of this trial. Now, I, was, I came across... Uh, well, let me, do, let me read verse 26 first. In uh, Mark chapter 5, verse 26, and then I'll explain. It says that she had endured much at the hands of many physicians. Twelve years this has been going on. She had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. I, I want to give you some sort of idea. I was fascinated by some of this when I, when I read this. I, I came across... a. a portion of the Talmud that talks about some of the remedies that were prescribed for women that might find themselves in this condition. Now, the Talmud um, was, is a collection of writings from uh, Jewish rabbis, uh, commentaries on, on thousands of different subjects. It's not scripture, it's not the Bible, but it's, it's a book or a scroll that, uh, that the Jews have used for thousands of years to deal with different situations. You know, in the Talmud it says, or it's written in the Talmud, all that kind of stuff. And so they would use that. So I want to read you a little bit of a portion of the Talmud that deals with a woman who might find herself with this issue of blood, whatever all it was. Now, let's just get a hold of some of this. The woman that has an issue of blood. Here's among, among some of the remedies. It's not all, but among some of the remedies, there's this. Take of the gum of Alexandria. I have no idea what that is, but I'm just, just what it says. Take of the gum of Alexandria, the weight of Azuzi, which was a a fractional silver coin, of, of a lump the same, of a crocus the same. Let them be bruised together. I assume that means, you know, pound them up. And given in wine to the woman that has an issue of blood. If this does not benefit, take of Persian onions, three logs or pints. Boil them in wine and give her to drink and say, arise from thy flux. If this does not cure her, set her in a place where two ways meet, two, I guess two roads or two intersections or something, and let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand and let someone come behind and frighten her. Well, I can't understand why that wouldn't work. Frighten her and say, arise from thy flocks. But if that do no good, take a handful of cumin, a handful of crocus, and a handful of hard word. Let, let these be boiled in wine and give them her to drink and say, arise from thy flocks. I'm wondering, all right, that's just, ladies, there's nothing against y'all, because <laughs> I, I can only imagine, I, I can't, I can't even imagine what it's like, but do you think at some point that woman thought to herself, if one more guy says to me, arise from thy flux, I'm going to kill him, I'm going to kill him. Uh, one of the, it said, it, said, it goes on, it says, if that doesn't work, it said, let them dig seven ditches. In which, let them burn some cutting of vines, not yet four years old. Now, if it's over four years old, you can't use those vines. Not yet four years old. Let her take in her hand a cup of wine. They're big on that. And let them lead her away from this ditch. In other words, so apparently she sits in one ditch and she does. And, and make her sit down over that. And let them remove her from that and make her sit down over another. Saying to, to her at each remove, each time they do it, arise from thy flux. If it doesn't work at that ditch, let's go to the next ditch. Let's go to the next ditch. Let's, let's, yeah, I mean, 
Now, this is just, and I don't, this is just what the Talmud says. I don't know what all else the physicians may have come up with, but you, this at least gives us a little taste of at least maybe a little bit of what this woman had endured for 12 years. And she had spent every dime that she had. And, and not only was she, did it not help, the text specifically says that she had grown worse and worse. So there's a cost to this thing. And it had cost, there's no question that it had cost her, this trial had cost her financially. There was a financial cost to this. Y'all know about financial trials, don't you? Y'all know about financial trials? Probably not. No, y'all probably do, but, but some people have, know about. But not only, how about this? Not only the financial cost, there's also the physical cost. Again, I don't know what the issue was, but I know that, that a constant loss of blood is going to have its physical effects on your body. I'm guessing that she probably uh, felt listless and lifeless. I, I, I'm guessing that she, that, she, that she never had any energy or felt like she didn't have any energy. Probably very little appetite as a result of what she was going to. And there was a physical cost to this trial that she was going to through. And there was also the spiritual cost. According to Leviticus chapter 15, this woman would be considered what was called ceremonially unclean. That would have been the technical term. She was ceremonially unclean. Now what that meant was that she could not go to the temple in Jerusalem. And that, you know, we'll get to synagogues in a minute. But the temple was, she could not go to the temple. She could not enter the area of the temple because she was considered ceremonially unclean. Now, I understand God knows our hearts and God can meet us where we are and all that kind of stuff. But you have to understand, in the life of a Jew, especially the life of a Jew 2,000 years ago, everything in worship surround, is surrounded, is, it's all wrapped up in the temple. Because the temple is where you go to offer sacrifice for, for the covering of your sins. And if she can't go to the temple, then she can't offer a sacrifice for her sins. And, and listen, I know this, that's hard for us to get our minds around, you know, why God instituted these certain rules and decrees and stuff for the, for the nation of Israel. It's hard for us because, number one, it's a long time ago. And number two, it doesn't apply anymore. It doesn't apply to us and it doesn't apply to them anymore because Christ took care of all of that. But the intent of the, of the regulations and the, the ceremonial laws, the intent of it was, for one thing, for God to help the people to understand God's holiness, his separateness, that he was, that he was unlike any other. He was pure. He was, he was sinless. He was all that. He was holy, set apart. But it was also designed to help the people understand that they would never be able to keep all of this. They would never be able to, to do all of these laws. That was the point. It was for them to understand that it was always God's intention to pay the sacrifice himself. It was always God's intention to accomplish what they would never be able to accomplish on their own. But she can't go to temple. And so there, there's a spiritual cost to this. And so connected to that would also be the social, what I call the social relational cost. Because listen, so I just said Leviticus 15, that's hard to say fast. Leviticus 15, she's ceremonially unclean. But you know what that meant? That meant that anybody that touched her or was touched by her was also considered ceremonially unclean and therefore had to go through this pretty rigorous washing and waiting period before they could be in other people's presence, before they could enter the temple. That's why, I believe, that's why the woman was afraid to, to step forward and let Jesus know who had touched him. Because she hasn't been able to touch anybody in 12 years. But no, nobody would want to be around this woman. Do you understand? She can't, they can't touch her, they can't be around her, she can't, she can't touch them. She's lost family, she's lost friends. There is a social, relational cost to this trial that she is going through. 
And so you can only imagine, but as a result of that, there would also be the psychological, emotional cost of a trial. You guys know anything about that? Emotional cost of a trial? Because listen to me. How many times, how many times as she said, will this ever stop? Will this ever go away? How many times has she begged God, God, end it, stop it, do something. God, work, do something. And it went on hour after hour, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. It was an unending circumstance for this woman. That's how it felt to her. And the weight of that circumstance was crushing this woman in this circumstance. Can, can anybody relate to that in this place? Here's somebody that relates in Psalm 102. Look what the psalmist says. who finds himself in, in a situation. He says, Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my plea. Don't turn away from me in my time of distress. Bend down to listen and answer me quickly when I call you. For my days disappear like smoke and my bones burn like red hot coals. My heart is sick, withered like grass. I've lost my appetite. Because of my groaning, I'm reduced to skin and bones. I'm like an owl in the desert, like an owl in a, in a far-off wilderness. I, I lie awake, lonely as a solitary bird on the roof. My enemies taunt me day after day. They mock and curse me. I, I eat ashes for food. It was a way of mourning, demonstrating mourning. My tears run down into my drink because of your anger and wrath, for you have picked, you have picked me up and thrown me out. That's how, that's how they feel. That's how the psalmist feels. My life passes as swiftly as the evening shadows. I am withering away like grass. And some of you in here know exactly what that feels like. Some of you in here can so identify with this woman in this story. Because day after day, year after year, it goes on. And what do you do? You pray and nothing changes. You make deals with God and nothing changes. You beg for a different situation and it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. It is a crushing trial in your life because the circumstances seem to have no end to them. <laughs> I, I, I've, got, I've got what I hope is a good word for you, a word of encouragement for you. Because I, I suspect based on the, the silence in this room right now that there's, there's some people that can relate to this. I've got, I've got a word for you, but, but before I get there, I, we, we've got to look at the other. Briefly, we've got to look at the other way that trials come into our life because we find that story there as well. And it looks like this. It is what I call the crashing trial. It is an unnerving crisis. One is crushing. It just, it just never ends. The other is crashing. It just, it just comes into our life. It is an unnerving crisis. Let me pick the story up. It's been a little bit since we read it. Let me read again, picking it up in verse 35. The, 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 woman, the, issue with the, the woman with the issue of blood, Jesus has stopped. He has, he has dealt with her. There's, there's so much we could say about all of that um, and, and what all has gone on. But now in verse 35, while he's still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Hey, listen, he, she's dead. She's been at the point of death. You knew that when you came looking for this guy, but she's dead. What's, what's the sense in even, right? Because death, I mean, that's it, right? I mean, that's, that's like, draw the curtain. 
But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. That's a good word right there. Sometimes in my circumstances, sometimes in my trials, I need to just remember uh, that word right there in verse 36. Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official. He saw a commotion, the people loudly weeping and wailing. Entering in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. Now, let's let's be clear about one thing. The child was dead. Almost everybody universally agrees that the child is dead. But what is death to Jesus? What is death to God? And in fact, in many places in the New Testament, uh, you'll hear references to a person that's died. The, the reference will be that they have, they have gone, they've fallen asleep or they're asleep. Because that's, for the person in Christ, that's all it is. They began laughing at him, but he put them all out. He, he t- took along the father, the mother, uh, and took along the companions that were with him. And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and he said that something should be given her to eat. That last part always kind of fascinated. I always zone into little tidbits that just seem in some sense obscure. Why does he say, don't tell anybody, and why does he say, give her something to eat? Well, for one thing, she's, she's alive again. She's going to get hungry. Maybe she hasn't eaten in, in several days. I don't know. Jesus cares about the needs of our life. I really genuinely believe that. And, and the not telling, don't, don't tell anybody. He's done that several times before. And I know part of it was because Jesus came on a mission. He came uh, to redeem us. He came to die for our sins. Not to, not to be the miracle worker, although he worked many miracles. But you understand what I'm saying? He came on a mission. And, he, and it was the teaching and it was the sacrifice he was going to make that, that he wanted... People needed people to zone in on. But, but you know, I, and I, this is purely speculation, but I was thinking, you know what? If, if, if the word gets out that this girl was dead and she came back to life, she is like A-list celebrity. You know what I'm saying back then? She, I, I don't believe, I, I think for the rest of her life, she's known as, as the girl that was raised from the dead. Now, maybe that's not such a bad thing. You say, yeah, praise God, he raised me from the dead. Maybe we, maybe we think that's not such a bad thing, but I'll tell you something, fame coming at a person at a very young age can have its detrimental effects. Ask Lindsay Lohan or Justin Bieber. I know, it's not, I know it's not the same kind of thing, but you understand what I'm saying? I don't know. Maybe Jesus is just protecting her. But in any event, Jesus goes with Jairus to the house. He, he, goes, in, he, he goes into this, this situation where she is. We know what he does. He works the miracle. We don't know anything about the, the, the one with the issue of blood, her background. We don't know anything, right? But we do know something about Jairus. We know that he was a synagogue official. Now, a synagogue was, um, it was, almost every town had at least one. It wasn't the temple. It wasn't where they offered sacrifice or anything, but a synagogue was a place they had, they'd kind of sprung up. And, uh, never mind. But uh, the synagogue was a place where you'd go for teaching from the Old Testament, and rabbis would be there, and they would give counsel, or they would give... Uh, commentary on the scriptures. It would it'd be a teaching place. Children often, it was like school for them. They would, they would go to the synagogue. In some sense, it wasn't Christian, it was, it was Jewish, but you could think of it kind of like, like a local church. It's what the synagogue was. And Jairus is the synagogue official. He, in some sense, you could say he's like the equivalent of a local pastor today. It's, it's a pretty good gig that he's got. He's in pretty good shape. He's, he's respected well in the community. 
Jairus' situation represents the, the trial that comes into our life, that comes into our life suddenly. Have y'all ever experienced any of those? Because I can't say this for sure. I, I am speculating here. But I, but I get the impression that, that this, this came on Jairus in a hurry. That, I mean, his, his daughter suddenly becomes sick, and, and, and she clearly is at the point of death when he leaves to go look for Jesus. I mean, she's close to death. It's the, it's, the, it's the trial that just comes crashing into our life. When maybe everything seemed like it was going along pretty well. And for Jairus, maybe it was. You know, I, I hope you guys don't, don't mind this. But I was thinking about this even last night as I was going over my sermon. I was praying and I was thinking uh, the Brown children had their birthday party yesterday. And uh, Felicity and Serenity turned uh, four. And uh, Jathan uh, turned two. And their birthdays are, right around, are all right around this thing. So they give, do the party all at, at one time. And I couldn't help but think about you guys and uh, just about two, was it right after the kids turned, after Felicity, after the right after turned one. So just, just about three years ago, right around this time, the twin girls, uh, Felicity and Serenity. Beautiful little girls and just, you know, we all saw them around here running around, all that kind of stuff and being little girls. And, and then Will and Jenna noticed that, that Felicity's stomach was kind of distended, had kind of this, something wasn't right and... And they go to the doctor, and, and, in, and in 30 seconds, right? In, in 30 seconds, your whole life has changed. And in 30 seconds, you're, you're seeing specialists from all around the world, and you're living at, at Duke Hospital around the clock, and your child's looking at, at surgeries and treatments and radiation and uncertainty of life expectancy, and, and, and on and on and on it goes. And it's like, what happened? It's it's the crashing circumstance. It's the crashing trial. And it is unnerving. Because, and I I know I forgot your first one. Y'all probably missed some blanks. But but because it brings into this particular circumstance, it brings into your life too much, uh, sorry, too much disappointment and disillusionment. It's, It's what it does in your life. You don't even, you're frozen. You don't even know, it's the next one. Well, Tyler, I'm sorry, the next one. Uh, debilitation, desperation for this one. Yes, thank you. Um, too much debilitation, desperation. Because you don't, have you ever have you ever been in a situation, a trial or something that hit you, and you didn't even know what to do. You didn't know where to turn, and you almost felt like you couldn't, like you're just frozen in that moment, completely debilitated because of this trial that has come into your life, desperate, which is where I think Jairus was, desperate to do anything to make it change, right. The other blanks that, that Tyler just brought up before that, uh, if, if you want to fill those in, uh, disappointment and delusionment, that, that was that, that's that unending trial. N- nothing seems to be working. No, another disappointment, arise from thy flux, disappointed, arise from thy flux, disappointed, arise, just on and on and on. Okay, all right. Let me try and get to what I hope is a word of encouragement about the trial. And, and I, I think I said this. I'm not saying that this is the only way that trials come, but it's been my experience that they t- tend to either uh, be a trial that just, just doesn't end or a trial that just comes suddenly into our life or some combination thereof. And I, and I would probably venture to say that, that virtually every person in here would say that they have been through probably both of those trials to some degree, to some extent, one way or another, at some time in their life. Right? I'm, I'm off on that. Okay, y'all are quiet. All right, let, let's get to a little bit of application here. Uh, let me tell you what you got to do. Here, here's a couple things you need to do, and I've got some things to say about it. First, you've got to be willing to face your fear. 
When, when you're in this trial, because, because I believe that every trial in some sense brings some sense of or some type or degree of fear with it. You have to be willing to face your fear. Now, in the case of the woman with the issue of blood, it's fear of nothing changing. Right? Here we go again. I'm going to go. I don't have any money left. I don't have anything left. But I've heard that this Jesus guy can do so. I'm not, try, I'm not saying she was disrespectful. I'm just trying to put myself in her place. And, and I'm going to go down here, and I'm going to see what happens. But, but what if nothing, what, 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 if, what if everything goes on? What if, oh, nothing changes? You know what I'm saying? It's, that's where she was with this unending circumstance. It's this fear that what if, what if it doesn't get better? What if this doesn't change? In Jairus' case, it's fear of everything changing. Because, you know, yeah, he's, I think he's pretty well off. He's well-respected in the community. He, he, he does well. He's, you know, he's got the admiration of people. He's got a solid job, if you will. He's got this family, this daughter. We don't know anything about his wife. We know he has a wife. He's got this daughter who, who I'm sure, like most daughters, would be the apple of your eye. But if Jesus doesn't do something, if she dies, everything changes. Because the only thing that really matters is this one that's so precious to him. You have to face the fear. What, and and those, that may not be your fears, but whatever those fears are, you have to face those fears in your life in the midst of those trials that you're going through. You have to recognize that they are. And when you face those fears, uh, here's what I'd say. You have to face those fears with two, uh, two truths, two pieces of knowledge. You have to face fear with two pieces of knowledge, all right? Um, I'm just going to be honest with you. These aren't, you know, these aren't going to blow your mind, but I, but I hope they grab your heart. Two pieces of knowledge. Here they are. First, here's the first one. God is good. God is good, ladies and gentlemen. No matter what the circumstance looks like, no matter what the trial looks like, no matter what, how dark it may be, no matter what it is, that you have to hold on to this truth that God is good. Look at this passage of Scripture in uh, Numbers 23. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken? Will he not make it good? He's not like a man. God is good. We may do good things from time to time, but we are not good. We are sinful creatures. God is holy and perfect and sinless, and he is good. That's the first piece of knowledge. Second piece of knowledge is this. The good God loves me. The good God loves me. Look at Psalm 84. Uh, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Psalm 109 says this. But you, O God, the Lord, deal kindly with me for your namesake because your loving kindness is good. Deliver me. Folks, there it is. There's the two truths that you have to hold on to in the midst of your trial as you face the fears that come with your trials. God is good and the good God loves me. And listen to me, you have to, you have to repeat those truths over and over again in your life to the degree that the, that the, that the trial is coming. You understand? To the degree, the intensity of the trial, because listen, Satan and your circumstances will do all they can to fill your mind with the idea that God doesn't care. God's not there. God's not going to do anything. There's nothing. There's no hope for you. And you have to fill your mind with something else. So I would encourage you to say it over and over and over again. God is good and the good God loves me. God is good and the good God loves me. God is good and the good God loves me. Would you say that out loud with me? God is good and the good God loves me. To say it over and over and over and over again. Out loud or in my mind or, or wherever, where, whatever. 
But you have to stand on those two truths to face your fears. All right, real quick. Um, here's, the, here's, the, here's the other thing. You have to be willing to risk faith. You got to risk it. There's some things you got to put out there when trials come into your life. All right? For the woman with the issue of blood, it's to risk another disappointment. She has been disappointed by physician after physician, expense after expense, time after time, year after year, and nothing has changed. And, and if y'all, listen, if you, I hope that you can understand what I'm saying or can relate to this. Have you ever been in a place where you've said to yourself, I, I, I can't handle one more disappointment. I can't take one more disappointment. If I do, I, I'm just going to explode. I can't, I can't do this. She has to risk that. To go to Jesus, she has to risk one more disappointment. For Jairus, it's risk his position. So there's, there's a lot emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, and even physically going on here for both of them. But it's risking his position. Because listen, he, he's not risking anything by, you know, from his daughter's standpoint, she's, it's pretty clear she's going to die. And I have no doubt that he has had every physician available that he could find has already been to see her. I, I'm, I'm quite sure of that. And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. But it is clear that she is going to die. So in that sense, he's, he's got no, it's, it's no risk to, to ask Jesus to go uh, see her. But remember what Jairus does. Jairus is a synagogue official, right? Guess who controls the synagogues? The Pharisees. Guess who had been following Jesus around looking for an opportunity to, to get Jesus in trouble? The Pharisees. The Pharisees would not be pleased with Jairus going to this rogue rabbi. This radical rabbi for help and giving him an opportunity to demonstrate his power. They would not have been happy about that. But that's in, in, in the face of fear, you have to risk your faith sometimes. You have to be willing to step out and say, I don't care what it costs me physically, emotionally, psychologically, financially. Uh, if I have to pay with my very life, that's what I will do because I, this, this is what I have to do. Okay, all right. Let me, let me just kind of draw this thing to a conclusion with, uh, with, this, with this statement. Diversity of trials will always require singularity of solutions. And that solution is Jesus. Now, if you've zoned me out, I know it's time to go, come back here one more minute. Listen to me. Listen to me. This is very important. This has been on my mind. Don't leave here today thinking that the solution is the end of your trial. That, that getting rid of the trial, that that's the solution. Okay? Now, that's what we see, right? With the one with the issue of blood and with Jairus. We, we see Jesus resolving their issue. No more issue of blood, pow, gone. No more dead daughter, pow, she's alive. And we see a solution. We see an outcome that we want to see, right? And, and we, we want a solution, right? Okay, that's all right. We want a solution. Everybody wants a solution to their trial. But I don't want you to leave here thinking that that's the point of, of what, what's going on here. Yes, this demonstrated Jesus' power, demonstrated who he was and, and all that kind of stuff. But the point of, that I want you to leave here with is that Jesus is the solution. Whether it's, whether it's to, to resolve your trial, to end your trial, or to empower you to walk through your trial. That's what I want you to understand, folks. This is very, very important. Because I don't want you to think, and I know there, there are people that teach that. Well, you know, just, just, Jesus, just pray it and believe it and, and it'll be done. I, I'm sorry, that's not, that's not a clear understanding of what the New Testament teaches. 
God's powerful. God can do anything he wants. God can raise the dead. God can heal the sick. God can do anything. And he does at times. I understand that. But I also understand that God is sovereign. And those results, you and I have to leave in his hands. So the diversity of trials will always require a singularity of solutions. And the solution is Jesus. It's not the resolution of your trial. I pray for you. And I pray that your trial is resolved. And I want to see it. But can I tell you this? And we'll, we'll, we'll wrap this up. God is the only one sovereign enough and smart enough to know the purposes for the trial. You and I aren't, and we have to come to this place where we understand, you know what? 12 minutes, 12 days, 12 years, or the rest of my life. To God be the glory. His knowledge is above mine. His purposes are above mine. My dad died uh, a number of years ago uh, from pancreatic cancer. It was, a, it was a very painful way to die, but he was able to spend... Uh, the last few months of his life at home. And after he died, uh, my mom was telling me one time, uh, she said, don't, don't get me wrong. She said, I, I miss your dad every single day. She said, but I wouldn't trade anything for those last few weeks that we had together, laying on that bed every day, just all day, talking and, and, and holding each other and, and, and experiencing closeness. That's what she said, experiencing a closeness that I've never experienced before in my life. Is there pain? Sure. But don't, don't sell God short that maybe even in the pain, God can use it to draw you to Him in a closeness that you could never experience any other way than if He didn't take you through the crushing trial or the crashing trial. The solution's always the same. Thanks, Pastor, for that timely reminder of what to do when trials come into our lives. You may or may not have experienced a trial like the ones described in Mark 5, but I bet we can all agree that sometimes life turns you every which way but loose. As Pastor Clay reminded us, we have one we can turn to who will never let us lose. He really is the only way to go. As Pastor Clay put it, diversity of trials will always require singularity of solutions. His name is Jesus. We're glad you joined us for this week's Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our everyday lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone who is looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, We experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross, and it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org.